Hello, it's Susan Carpenter here with my colleague Paul O'Donnell. As a follow-up to our webinar on parents and schools, we hope to share with you a range of real-life case studies. You're very welcome to our podcast. It's important to start by saying that the overwhelming majority of schools enjoy excellent relationships with the parents of pupils in their care. However, from time to time, issues and differences of opinion do arise. So we've decided to share some minor and maybe major case studies that schools have found themselves in relating to this area. We hope that you find something useful to help you deal with such issues which may arise in your own school. We certainly do, Susan. And thanks to all the webinar participants who forwarded questions that have framed this podcast for us. And also just to reiterate for listeners that we've drawn our material from schools around the country and we have contacted individual schools where they may be identifiable in the case studies for their consent and all have done so. You may hear these stories and realise the situation sound familiar probably because these difficulties have common elements in them. And the case studies we refer to are all obviously framed by the agreed parental complaints procedure, which is available on our website under guidance notes, as is a recording of our webinar on this topic. So Susan, can I start with a confession rather than a case study? I'm not really sure that this is the time or the place, Paul. I think it is, I think it is. So when I was a principal, After about five years being in the role was the first time I'd ever heard of the parental complaints procedure. You never knew it existed? I had no idea. I know this might be tough for you to take as a big fan of procedures. (laughs) I do love a good procedure. It's true. Uh, Well, but I'm being honest. I had never, ever heard of it. But did you not have any issues or breakdowns in communication in your school? Well, of course we did. And like the old joke is, you only need two people in a room for long enough for an issue to emerge. So we were, you know, we're we're educating the most precious things in parents' lives. And differences of opinion arose all the time. But because I didn't know a procedure existed, when something happened between a parent and a teacher, I assumed that the only procedure was that I had to get them both to talk to each other to find a solution. And that a solution had to be found. And what if that didn't work, Paul? Well, it did most of the time. And in the few occasions that it didn't, the next stage of my invented procedure was that I started talking to them both until we then found a solution. Oh, well, that, I suppose, in effect, is stage 1.1 and 1.2 of the procedure. And it's the way the vast majority of issues are resolved anyway. Oh, I, I do know that now. Yeah, that... <laughs> what I'm really curious about, though, Paul, is what did you do when that didn't work? Well, because I didn't know that there were any other stages, I just kept talking to both parties. And if I had to, I got them into a room together and kept talking to them until maybe I tired them out and we found a solution, or at least until we agreed to disagree. And the the Paul O'Donnell parental complaints procedure worked very happily and successfully for five years until I finally read that there was a formal procedure. Well, I I think inadvertently you've really hit the nail on the head of what the culture of schools should be when issues or concerns arise from parents. And this applies to all staff in the school community. Make solving the issue the main priority 
And by that, I mean genuinely listen to the concerns to understand and not just a reply. Don't get defensive or take it personally. Ask what might be right about what this parent is saying or why they're raising the issue. The only thing I'm a bit queasy about, Paul, is putting everyone in a room and not letting them out. Well, I was speaking metaphorically, you know what I mean. And uh, But I, I never thought of it like that. But you are you are making me feel a, a wee bit better about myself now, Susan. Good. So, so now to our scenarios. And would you like to relate your first choice for us, please? I will indeed, Paul. So our first case related to a child with additional needs who had an SNA appointed to assist with care needs. Then, two other pupils were enrolled with additional needs, but the school was told they had to be catered for from their existing allocation of one SNA. Because this child had exclusive access up till then, the parent was upset about the loss of her child's access to the SNA. But well, this is a very reasonable reaction, isn't it, Susan? A lot of parents of children with needs have to fight for resources. And then you can see how the parent would have perceived this situation when she just wanted the best for her child. I agree, Paul. And actually, so did the school principal. However, the issue was one of resourcing. In this case, the school had applied for additional resource by way of appealing the SNA allocation, but they were informed that this would take a number of months. In the meantime, the principal met with the parent at stage 1.2 of the procedure to explain why the access was changing and also explained what the school was doing by way of applying for additional support. However, mum felt that enough wasn't being done and decided to take the matter further. Long story short, two days later, each board member got a letter in the post outlining the parent's complaint and containing a request for a meeting with the board of management. Well, I... Belatedly, as I came to it, I I don't remember reading about letters to all Board of Management members as part of the parental complaints procedure. You're right there, Paul. And when things happen that aren't in the procedure, this is often when things go wrong. To cut a very long story short, the chair called an emergency board meeting of all eight members to discuss the matter further. He asked all of the members to bring their copy of the letter with them. I dread to hear the words emergency board meeting. So how did it go? Well, the board had a full discussion on the contents of the letter and each member had their own opinion on what should happen next. At the end of the meeting, the chair collected up all the letters from the members and the following morning he decided to ring me for advice on what to do next. I I suppose it might have been ideal if that happened before this meeting because I see two problems here. One in relation to the correspondence itself and the second one in calling the meeting. Absolutely, Paul. So first, the chair is the correspondent of the board. So when communication comes to any other board member, they should give it directly to the chair or he should request it from them. In fairness, though, he did do that after the meeting. A bit like yourself in the procedure. Better late than never. And secondly, the procedure was only at stage 1.3, where the chair becomes informally involved. If the board is to become involved, it will only be in exceptional circumstances at stage four. But by holding a meeting on the issue before then, they had potentially invalidated the whole process. So what did you advise, Susan? Well, I advised the chair to come clean to both parties, that a mistake had been made, but that if both agreed, he would intervene at stage 1.3 to help broker a solution. While it wasn't easy, they did come to an agreement over the next steps. And while the child didn't get the total allocation of time once in place, the school were ultimately also successful with an SNA exceptional review. So in summary here, the board should not be informed in any way 
until the matter has reached stage four. So letters shouldn't be read out at board meetings, but they can be noted. And that all correspondence to individual board members for any situation should be given straight to the chair by the members of the board. I think that pretty much explains it, Paul. Maybe we should have just said that instead. (laughs) I think it's the way you tell the story, Susan. That's what makes it. So while it seems to have been a challenging situation, it is good to hear that there was a positive conclusion. Now, our emphasis here is on parental complaints procedure as a framework for resolving difficulties. But what if you can't tell if it's a parental complaint or not? And that's, I suppose, what I chose for my next case study. And in this study, a number of issues and concern were bubbling under the surface between parents and the school relating to their junior infant child. And a cycle of events would take place generally in this situation. The parents would highlight concerns, including bullying allegations. The school would investigate but could not substantiate anything. They would inform the parents that the child was happy, engaged in class and on yard, and that they would continue to monitor. But this further frustrated the parent. And informally, at stage 1.1 and 1.2, resolution conversations were had with the teacher and the principal, but to no avail. So did the principal inform the parents that she passed the issue on to the chair to intervene at stage 1.3? Well, yeah, reluctantly, yes, she did. And also told the parent that the chair would be in touch. Now, chairpersons don't usually get involved in the day-to-day running of schools. And the majority may be, I suppose, like I was for a long, blissful period, unaware that the procedure exists. So they wouldn't generally be familiar with how to handle them. We do get a lot of chairs calling us at this stage looking for assistance. And and I actually think that's brilliant when Mm -hmm. the chair rings at this stage, Susan. There'll be an independent person coming in objectively to hear both sides and try to find common ground. And we can support them to ensure that the procedure is followed in its entirety. But anyway, the problem was, was what happened next. Before the chair could act, She received a 10-page letter from the parent outlining the issues with the school. It was a timeline of the child in the school and dates and times of incidents, allegations and responses from the school. Also, there seemed to be child protection allegations, bullying allegations and existing and new parental complaints included. Then the chairperson rang me and was understandably all in a flap, wondering where the parental complaints procedure she should start. Wow, it sounds like there was lots to tease out there. And even experienced principals, never mind volunteer chairpersons, might not be aware that usually only one procedure should take place at a time. Exactly. So basically we had to identify what was a child protection allegation, what was a bullying allegation, what was a parental complaint, and then I suppose what was commentary on the whole thing. And once we did that, the child protection allegation obviously became the priority and the child protection procedures were followed first. So each each procedure can only take place one at a time. And that's the, that was the priority. Now, in this case, Tusla confirmed that it did not meet the threshold of harm and the parents were informed of this. But 10 pages of a complaint, Paul. And two appendixes, I might add. But the chair did a super job. She bullet pointed the main issues that that were left. So 
there wasn't bullying allegation had been made but the school had investigated and had finished that process so it was left with a complaint and the chair bullet pointed the main issues on seven lines and this is obvious obviously often the hard bit summarizing the main issues and then starting from that point so she had to tell the teacher and the principal that they were now parties to the complaint and they had to seek their own union advice and then she met the parents to hear them out. Stage 1.3 is realistically the last chance saloon to find a resolution, Paul, isn't it? Because they just repeat, but in a more formal manner. Well, they do. And if, if there is going to be a chance, this is it. And the chair listened objectively, took some brief notes uh, with the consent of the parent. And, and they tallied with her bullet points from the letter originally. And then the chair asked the parents what I thought was a brilliant question. How would you like to see this resolved? Because a lot of the time people are probably so consumed with the problem and getting heard that they may not have considered what they what they think a solution actually looks like. And in this case, they gave the chair some aspects to work with. So she met both parties individually on a number of occasions again, and then ultimately together. And they all kept engaging. Ultimately, though, the summer holidays beat them to a resolution. But the lesson for the principal and the chair was that at every stage of their involvement, I suppose, is to put the time in and do everything reasonable to find a solution that suits both parties. So our final case study, Paul, is about what happens in the one or two percent of cases that go beyond stage one. We've already mentioned that when chairpersons find themselves in this position, they should call us for support. And there's a good reason why. Yeah, yeah, my experience is that after stage one, each case is very individual and the procedures, it's difficult for them to cater for every possible eventuality. And my previous case study is, is, a, is a point there. So an amount of fair and reasonable interpretation is needed. I agree, Paul. For example, we've had a stage two meeting that was due to take place within five school days, but the chair was heading off on holidays to Fort Ventura a statement from a teacher at stage three that she'd only communicate via email and a stage four hearing as well of both parties where the parents wouldn't appear and hasn't communicated with the school for three months. In simple terms, most parties have strong opinions on what should happen, when and how, meaning that the process from stage two onwards really needs to be well led by the chair. I'm hoping that that chair still went to Fort Ventura, Susan. Oh, he did. And all of the parties involved sensibly agreed to a pause until his return. Anyway, Paul, I suppose when the attempts at resolution at stages one, two and three fail, the board become involved, but not beforehand. And the procedure is very clear on that. Stage 4.1 states that if the complaint is not resolved, the chairperson should make a formal report to the board within 10 days of the meeting referred to in 3.1. So what does this mean in practice? Well, what it says afterwards in stage 4.2 and 4.3 is useful to help us here. In simple terms, the chair makes a summary report to the other board members of events to date. It can be verbal or it can be a summary in bullet points and contents might include the initial complaint of the parents, measures taken to find a resolution at stage one by both parties, the outstanding complaints not resolved and put in writing at stage two, the levels of engagement and measures offered to find resolution at stages two and three by both parties, and then it may be any outstanding complaints not resolved. 
At this stage, board members can ask questions or points of clarification so that they're near the general substance of the issue. The board then decides on what happens next. If they believe the complaint is not substantiated, then that's the end of the matter as far as the board is concerned. And as per stage 4.2 of the procedure, the teacher and the complainant should be informed within three days of the board meeting. Or alternatively, as per 4.3, if the board considers that the complaint is substantiated or that it warrants further investigation, it proceeds to the next stage, which is a full investigation and hearing at board level. Again, at stage four, there are so many variables at play. For example, if the complaint is against the principal, he or she can't be present for stage four. If the complaint is against the teacher nominee, he or she can't be present for stage four. If there is a conflict of interest, perhaps, as outlined in the governance manual for any board member related to any of the parties of the complaint, they also need to be excused from stage four. So really, our simple message here is please ring us in advance of any part of the process from stage two onwards. We would be delighted to help ensure a successful resolution insofar as is possible. Thanks a million, Susan. That's a really comprehensive overview of, of the latter stage there at stage four. And thanks also to all the listeners for sticking with us to the end. And we hope that you found some practical nuggets in there that might be of assistance to you in your role in, with your school. Don't forget that the webinar is available to view on the guidance notes section of the website and as are all the resources that we mentioned on the webinar as well. Goramila Maig of Goler, Slan, August Bannacht.